Well, we're going to finish Luke 4 this morning, Lord willing. They say that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we don't have to go far to see examples of this. We've seen churches where pastors rule with an iron fist, and they don't love and serve people. They use them to fulfill their own desires. We've seen husbands who don't love their wives the way Christ loves the church. Instead, they rule over their wives and seek to use them to gratify the desires of the flesh. We've seen it in world history, leader after leader after leader, dictator after dictator who murders and tortures and starves their people, their true and perceived enemies. And in our own country, we see where once reliable leaders are oftentimes seemingly corrupted with power. In fact, the the misuse and abuse of authority is the result of the fall. And if we're honest, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of living for ourselves in our use of authority and power. God has given me authority as a, as a dad, as a father, and when, when I'm annoyed in a moment, and I'm angry and I raise my voice, I know in that moment I've, I've abused my authority that God has given me and I need to seek forgiveness. I've sinned against those that are under my care. So the question becomes, an, is there truly, is there indeed something inherent in authority and power that corrupts? And the answer is actually surprising. The answer is no. The answer is there's something in us that inherently corrupts power and authority. Power doesn't make me worse. Power reveals what's in my heart. And that's what makes our passage so incredible this morning. It makes it so stunning to see Jesus who wields absolute authority and power. And he demonstrates it in all kinds of different ways in our text. Yet we see the way that he wields power and authority is not to gratify his own heart. It's to serve others for the good of those around him. So as we turn to Luke 4, 31, through the end of the chapter, we see the authority of Jesus on display in multiple ways. The first way we get a glimpse in our text is in the, the, the authority of Jesus' teaching. In the first couple of verses there, Acts, or Acts, Luke 4, 31 and 32. Paul read it for us earlier, but I'll read those two verses again. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Having been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus goes to Capernaum. Jesus was teaching in Nazareth last week as we were uh, remaining in Luke 4. He taught in the synagogue that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, the fulfillment of Isaiah 58, that he is the one that bears the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is the one that has come to preach good news to the poor, to set at liberty the captive, 
to heal the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of salvation, the year of the Lord's favor. And he announces now, this is, this is the time I've come. Behold, this, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one, the servant of Isaiah. And though they were impressed with Jesus' ability to teach, they ultimately reject his message. They are absolutely enraged when Jesus says, you know, I'm not surprised that you're rejecting me. The, the, the prophet. Because you, you rejected all the smaller prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And guess what? The, the blessing of those prophets went elsewhere. And they set out to kill Jesus. And he slipped away unscathed. In our passage, he enters Capernaum, a city of Galilee. It's kind of on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's a center of agriculture and fishing. It, interestingly enough, sits below sea level. And as was his custom, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath, and there's something about Jesus. There's something about his teaching that astonishes the crowd. There's an amazement. There's, there's a shock in the room when he teaches. You know, we're, we're reminded of the passage we walked through in Luke 2, where even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus is, well, you know, Mary and Joseph have, has lost Jesus for three days. They're searching for him. They find him in the temple. He's sitting at the feet of the teachers, asking and interacting with questions. And we, were, we read this, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So what is it? What is it that's astonishing about the teaching of Christ? The defining characteristic of the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus that amazes the crowd is the authority of Christ. It's a, they were astonished at what? His teaching. Why? For His word possessed authority. Unlike others, when they would teach, they would appeal to, to Jewish tradition. Jesus did not need to make those appeals. When He spoke, it was the very words of God because He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. You see, when I preach, I, I, I need to be really careful to demonstrate, and anybody that preaches from this pulpit needs to be able to demonstrate what I'm saying is consistent with what God has revealed because God's Word is authoritative. But when Jesus speaks, it is the very Word of God. Jesus didn't need to prove His words. Jesus didn't need to quote Tom Schreiner or John MacArthur just say, hey, look, I'm not the only one that says this. I'm not crazy. When He speaks, it's the very Word of God. God, we saw it with the way he handled Isaiah 61. When he got done reading Isaiah 61, he doesn't appeal back to what other people have said. He says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Let me interpret this for you because I am God in the flesh. As the incarnate God, the one who entered creation, has taken on the fullness of humanity, Jesus' words are God's words, and they therefore carry authority. The crowd, they recognize 
There's something different. There's something unique in the way he teaches. There's something different about his words. And if you kind of trace this theme through the book of Luke, Jesus continues to teach, and his word continues to have authority. In chapter 5, the crowd presses in around Jesus so that they might hear the word of God. Later in Luke, towards the end, it describes Jesus as mighty in word and deed. And in Acts, which was also written by Luke, then, then the word of God explodes. And it explodes in Jerusalem. And then persecution comes and Christians are scattered and the, the word scatters because the word has authority and power. Wherever Christians are found in Acts, they are proclaiming the word of God. The authoritative and powerful word. So Jesus possesses authority as God, and one of the ways he demonstrates this authority is through his teaching. So I've been, there's been a few places in Luke where I've, I thought this application might work, but let me make it here. Some try to pit the words of Jesus against the rest of the Bible. Some, you, you might have heard of red-letter Christians. I only believe what Jesus says. I don't believe the Old Testament. I don't believe some of the things that Paul wrote. But I want to take a moment and, and stress this point, that when Jesus teaches, he affirms the authority of the Old Testament. He speaks of Adam. He speaks of Abraham. He speaks of Jonah. And he speaks of many others as real historical people. He speaks to the authority of the law when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Also, Jesus promises in the book of John that he will equip the disciples with the Spirit so that they might recall all the words of Jesus, that they might be authoritative as they record Scripture. So this whole thing that I, I only believe the words of Jesus, it, it's inconsistent. It's, it's inconsistent. If we accept the words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, then we inevitably end up affirming the rest of the Bible. So as Jesus teaches with authority because He is God, He demonstrates His power, His authority. It is recognizable, and the crowd is astonished, but here we see Jesus is just warming up. We, we, we spent a whole week last week on the authority of Jesus and his teaching, but he's just warming up here. He, he also demonstrates his authority over wicked angels. Look in verses 33 through 37. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. We see Jesus' interaction with an unclean, and an evil angel, a demon. 
The Bible is actually unapologetic about the presence and reality of angels, both righteous and unrighteous. Though they are unseen, they are indeed real. And it's ironic in a, in a time where lots of people are sort of obsessed with, with the paranormal that something like the reality of angels would be considered a fairy tale. But we know from Scripture that God created angels. Satan and several others rebelled against God and stand in opposition to Christ. We saw it in Luke 4 as Jesus came and sought to undermine Jesus as the Son of God. And we see it here as he's, there's a confrontation with a demon. Luke reminds us of the wickedness. This is, a, this is a wicked, this is an evil demon, Luke says. I know that, you know, as we read through and work through Luke, it's easy for us to become familiar with stories about Jesus healing others or Jesus casting out demons so that then we lose a little bit of the, of the shock, a little bit of, of the awe. But Luke writes in such a way that we almost become spectators in the synagogue. It's almost as if we're sitting there listening to Jesus teach. We're more than a fly on the wall. We're, we're in the crowd, and we're standing there, and we're astonished at the authority with which Jesus is teaching. And we see this just crazy thing happen in church, right? Or you might say the synagogue. It's from this crowd that this wild scream fills the synagogue. One time, the church I came from, we were doing a communion service, and you, you know, communion is a solemn moment. We, we, we try here not to make a lot of jokes during communion. Or, um, well, the same way, it was the same way at Grace Williams. So the deacons passed out the, the elements, and it was right before we were going to take the cup. And Pastor Bob gets up, and he, he reads from Scripture, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. And from the front row where a lot of the teenagers gather, somebody says, cheers. We've never seen that kid since. I don't know. <laughs> when something crazy happens in church, when something crazy happens in a synagogue where Jesus is teaching, all eyes dart to that moment, to that person. And you can imagine Jesus teaching to a, to a group. And out of the crowd comes this, this scream, this de demonic voice. Ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? That, that awe, it's, a, it's an emotive term. It's an emotional term. It's a, it's a, there's a negative connotation, like, what are you doing here? Leave me alone. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's, the demon is trembling in the presence of Jesus. One question that arises from the text in verse 34 is, why does the demon say twice, us? If there's one demon, why does he say twice, us? What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I think the, sometimes we try to complicate things. I, th I think the answer is fairly simple. The demon seems to be saying, have you come to destroy us as in the wicked angels? Has our time come for the judgment to fall on those who rebelled against God? He knows that Jesus possesses the authority 
And he knows that Jesus will one day judge all wicked angels forever. Has Jesus come to carry out our sentence, he is asking. And notice the irony. If we think about our text last week and we think about our text this week, notice the irony. The synagogue worshipers in Nazareth did not recognize Jesus, even though he stood up and plainly told them who he was. Yet the demon in the synagogue in Capernaum knows exactly who Jesus is. He even says true things about Jesus. He even hints at the incarnation, the dual nature of Jesus. You are Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. He is echoing truth that we learned in Luke chapter 1. This child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. If you look down even at verses 41 and 42, we see that this is not an isolated incident where these wicked angels are recognizing Christ. The demons came out of many, the text says, crying, you are the Son of God. This reminds us that to be right with Jesus, to be reconciled to God through Christ, To be the recipient of divine grace and receive the forgiveness of God in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ involves more than believing true and right things about Jesus. To be reconciled to God involves more than believing true and right things about Jesus. That alone, in and of itself, is not saving faith. This text is consistent with James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder before him. They not only know the person of Jesus, but they tremble before him. So saving faith, to be reconciled to God, it it is not less than knowing who Jesus is, but it is more than knowing who Jesus is. It's not less than recognizing that Jesus is indeed the perfect Son of God who has lived a perfectly righteous life and that in Himself He bore the punishment and penalty for sin and that He rose victoriously from the grave and then ascended to sit victoriously at the right hand of the Father after all authority in heaven and on earth were given to Christ. It's not less than that. We must affirm that truth. But saving faith is pushing all your chips in on that. It's throwing yourself at that. It is a friendly reliance on the work of Jesus. It's not just, I believe He did that work. It's, I trust that He did it for me. And without that, I am destined to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. When you believe that in saving faith, it changes you. It changes you. You are not the same after you meet Christ. You have a new relationship with sin. There's repentance. Certainly there's still sin and there's still failure and there's still temptation. And man, we we loathe the, the, the sinful desires that still lurk in our hearts, but we no longer love our Saving faith is a friendly reliance that results in fruit that God produces in our lives. 
even the demon recognizes Jesus and knows true things about Jesus. Remember that as Luke writes, we're in the synagogue, we're in the crowd, we're wondering, what's Jesus going to say to this? You might expect Jesus to say, you know what, you're right. Thank you for providing me the illustration. I am the Holy One of God. But he commands the demon to, to be silent. Jesus was hesitant here and at other places in the Gospels that, that his fame would spread too quickly. You see, Jesus, it, it, these are some confounding passages when Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody I did that. He was on a mission to go to the cross at the appointed hour. And so there's places where Jesus says, hey, say nothing to anybody about what he had done for them. We've seen already in Luke that many thought Jesus was nothing more than a political ruler, an earthly king. And Jesus knows if, if this word gets out, they're just going to try to make me king here. And his, his mission is not right now to rule over Rome. It's to go to the cross. He must wear the crown of thorns before he wears the crown of glory. It's also likely that Jesus doesn't need nor want the endorsement of a wicked angel. He doesn't need his testimony, so he silences the demon. That's the first command, be silent. The second command is, come out. Come out of the man. There was no debate. There's no struggle back and forth. This is not an arm wrestling match between equal opponents. With Jesus eking out the victory in the end, there is no ritual. This is the authority of Jesus. He speaks, and it happens. We see the total authority and power of Jesus on display. You see, anyone can tell someone what to do. You know, a toddler will sometimes tell their mom and dad what to do. The true test is, do you obey? Sometimes you see, yeah, the toddler is actually in charge. The true test is if someone obeys or not. I can tell a lot of people what to do. <laughs> I like the way Jeff said something. He was talking about something else, but he said, you know, it's hard to exercise authority without being authoritative. You know, so it's, it's easy to go around and try to throw your authority around. The question is, do people listen? Do people obey? Jesus said, come out. And the demon came out. The wicked angel here, I... I is tremendously powerful. I don't want to downplay the, the principalities and the powers. I don't want to downplay the power that, that an angel has, even a wicked angel. In this text, he indwelt a man. He took over the man's speech. He throws the man to the ground. This is a powerful being, but it's nothing. Nothing compared to the authority that Jesus possesses as God. He speaks and it happens. And notice that Jesus' use of authority leads to a man who is cleansed and Luke says unharmed. I don't think that's an incidental detail in the passage. God's power overcomes evil with the authority of Jesus' voice and safely delivers a man who was utterly and completely helpless to deliver himself. 
And we see in Christ that he is a compassionate deliverer. You see, Jesus isn't corrupted by power and authority because he is not corrupted by sin like we are. He uses his authority and power to deliver, to save, and to rescue. You see, if you think about God would be the ultimate villain if he had all authority and was evil. He would be the ultimate villain if he had all authority, yet he used it to hurt and to harm. Yet we know that Christ, that God in the flesh, is the very definition of good. He is holy, holy, holy. So what does that mean for us? You can trust Jesus. You don't have to be suspicious of Jesus. There's no dark side that's going to come out in the news. There's no evil in him. Everything that he does is good. Everything that he does is righteous. Everything that he does is just. You see it in the way that he delivers a man in a synagogue who was overcome with a wicked angel. And again, we see the reaction of the crowd in verse 36. They're, they're amazed. Recalling the first couple verses we walked through, they can't believe that Jesus' words alone were powerful enough to accomplish what they had just seen. Can you believe it? They ask. Can you believe what we just saw? What are these words? He just spoke and it happened. They're amazed. He just told the wicked angel to come out, the demon to come out, and he came out. Not surprisingly, then, this story spreads like absolute wildfire throughout the region. You don't see something like that and not tell others about it. So this actually marks the first miracle in the book of Luke. I don't know if you kind of were keeping track, but this is the first miracle in the book of Luke performed by Jesus. All right, the virgin conception of birth is quite the miracle. <laughs> this is the first one performed by Jesus, and he does it to demonstrate his supreme authority over the forces of darkness. And it foreshadows the time coming very soon at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus where he delivers the death blow. Jesus has not only come to forgive sins, but to deliver his people from the power of darkness. Ephesians chapter 2 and other places says, In our unbelief, we unwittingly followed the wicked influence of this world. We were blinded from seeing the beauty of Christ. We remained in our rebellion. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We indulged in the lust of the flesh. Yet through the death and resurrection of Christ, we're delivered, Paul says in Colossians, from the domain of darkness, from the dominating control of this world system and the prince of the power of the air, and we're transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. I heard someone say the other day, the moving van showed up. Forward the mail because your address changed from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. You've been freed from the dominating effects of sin and the evil one. As those who have been transferred, as those who have been united by faith to Christ, we actually share in the victory that Christ won for us. When Jesus ascended to heaven, we, we, we talked about this when we walked through Colossians. 
When Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, it was like a parade, uh, an embarrassing parade, parading the demons and the wicked angels through the streets as a defeated army, as a defeated group. The ascension of Christ is a victory lap. It's Christ proclaiming that you have been defeated by my work. You know what the book of Ephesians says about that? We've been raised up, and we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As those who are in Christ, we're in a position where we are delivered from the power of darkness. They now await their final sentence. The death blow has been uh, made, and now they, they roam about, and many of them roam about, seeking to cause opposition and trouble for God and His people to overthrow God. But they have no hope. They have no hope. And that's what, the, that's what he was asking. Is today the day where I receive my final judgment? So those who are in Christ, they're not dominated by the domain of darkness. Martin Luther expressed it in a hymn. I think we sung this a couple weeks ago. A mighty fortress is our God, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus speaks and demonstrates his authority over all the powers of darkness. We see Jesus Kind to the man, delivering the man, rescuing the man, and demonstrating his sovereign authority. But Jesus is still not done. He still seeks to demonstrate his power. Luke still, as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to just keep coming back to this and back to this and back to this and see Jesus' authority another way, over the physical, over the seen world, over Sickness. Look in verses 38 through 41. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. The third way we see Jesus demonstrating his authority is authority over sickness. This is the same day. He goes from the synagogue over to Simon's house. That's why I think we're kind of meant to, to keep this together. That's why we're preaching it as one unit. It's still continuing the same thought from Luke. He leaves the synagogue, goes to the home of Simon. This is Peter, the apostle, whom Luke will introduce us to in chapter 5, when Peter is officially called to be a disciple of Christ. We quickly learn that Simon's mother-in-law is sick and near death. We learn from the book of Colossians that Luke is a physician, so we're not surprised that Luke includes more details about her sickness than the other writers of the gospel. 
And so the family begins to appeal to Jesus to act. The text says in verse 39 that he stands over her and he rebukes the fever, and the fever obeys. The infection that was causing the fever, whatever it was, it listens to Jesus. Now, we've got the greatest healthcare professionals in the world in this church, but none of them can treat you like this. And so we're reminded again that Jesus possesses this authority because of who He is. As Creator of all things, as Sustainer of creation, He has the right to speak, and the fever obeys. In fact, if we think about Colossians 1 calling Jesus the Creator of all things, what is a fever to Jesus who spoke and the sun popped up in the sky? who spoke, and then billions of other stars, many of them larger than our sun, filled the universe. Who filled creation. He spoke and trees shot up out of the ground. So what is a fever in light of Christ? It's no surprise that Jesus controls the physical world. Someone might push back and say, well, you know, the disciples heal people too later on in Luke and the other Gospels. Should we consider them divine? Are they God? Well, Luke makes it really clear in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority. Their authority is a derived authority. It comes from Jesus because he is the Son of God. And in Luke 9, it's authority to heal and cast out demons. And it comes from Jesus. Theirs was a a, a delegated, a temporary authority granted to the disciples as they go out to preach the kingdom of God. Only Jesus heals and works with, with the power of his own authority. This healing... Reminds us, as has been demonstrated throughout the text, that Jesus is who He says He is. The text announces that the day of Christ has come. The Messiah is here. This is not another uh, prophet like Elijah or Elisha who, who had to pray and ask, God, would you raise this child from the dead? And God had to act. The day of Christ, the year of salvation, it's here the Savior has arrived. and He demonstrates His arrival by demonstrating His ability to reverse the effects of the fall. To fix what was broken in Genesis chapter 3. Later on in John the Baptist's life, when he's in prison in chapter 7, he has a moment of doubt. And he asks, is Jesus really the Christ? Is Jesus really the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus' answer is, tell him what I've done. Tell him that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news to preach to them. Tell him what I've done, and then he'll know that I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Jesus' answer to John in large part, whether he is the Messiah or not, is look at the miracles because they demonstrate my authority. They announce the arrival of the Savior. And I also love 
the completeness of the healing by Jesus here. In the beginning of verse 38, Jesus is still in the synagogue. A lady is dying in her house, and by the end of verse 39, she's cooking lunch. Notice the completeness with which Jesus is able to work and to heal. And in this passage, Simon's mother-in-law is not the only recipient of Jesus' healing power. By the way, assuming Peter's the one that invited Jesus over, what a way to get in with the in-laws. As the Sabbath ended, now people can start bringing their sick to Jesus. The sun is going down, so they bring their the sick and the, the disease to Jesus to be healed, and they were not disappointed. I love the way Luke records the details. Jesus laid his hands on every one of them. Jesus had the authority to say, you know what, just go, you'll be good. He could have looked at his metaphorical watch and said, man, I don't have time for this. You guys are all healed. Go home. But Jesus lays his hands on each one, healing them one at a time. What a compassionate Savior. What a compassionate Savior we have. Compassion is actually the the most attributed emotion to Christ in the Incarnation. He looks over the crowd and he, he has emotion because the crowd is like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on the lost. He has compassion on the sick. He has compassion on the hungry. And he is compassionate towards us. He moves towards those who are in need. He lays hands on them and they are delivered. Jesus possesses all authority, but he possesses it with compassion that comes from his identity as God. He uses his power to deliver and to rescue and to save and to glorify God. Don't forget how unique this is. This is not natural. This is not the way we've seen power used in every generation from the time of Genesis chapter 3. This is only possible, at least for someone to do continually all the time the way Jesus did. It's only possible in the person of Jesus Christ. For some of you, it might be hard to read this passage and consider the implications for for those suffering with chronic suffering, chronic pain, loved ones who are walking through chronic pain, or even those who who are just aging and you're beginning to feel the reality and the possibility of death. It might be easy to ask, why not me, Lord? Why not heal my body? You touched and healed hundreds here maybe in this day. And many of them probably walked away and rejected you. But here I am. So let me encourage you this morning to hold these two categories in mind. He's authoritative and he's compassionate. See, we aren't guaranteed healing in this life, but we can bank on this. Because he's compassionate and because he's authoritative, whatever he has caused to happen in my life, he is somehow, somehow, using it for my good to conform me to Christ, 
to glorify God, to teach me my weakness so that I might rely on the power of God. So here's the application. If he can change your circumstances and he chooses not to, hang your hat on the compassion of Christ. Hang your hat on the goodness of Christ. He has not forgotten about you. He's not abandoned you. His plan is mysterious. The secret things belong to the Lord, but that which is revealed belongs to us. His plan is mysterious, but his character is not. You can bank on the character of Jesus. You can bank on him. We can trust Jesus in our suffering because he's compassionate and because he has the authority to act. Not surprisingly, this group, they want to keep Jesus around. But Jesus has a mission to accomplish. And his mission involves more than miraculous works. Jesus has a divine mission given to him by the Father. That's what we see in the last few verses here. Verses 42 to 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. In the morning, Jesus goes out to a desolate place. He gets away from the crowd. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus went out there specifically to pray. And like your kids in the morning, they they find him. They find him. I'm not sure they understand at this point who Jesus is. But they know they have 100% free health care that is 100% effective. And they don't want to lose it. But Jesus reminds us, he uses this moment in verse 43 to point to his mission for which he was sent from the Father that includes more than healing, more than casting out demons. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. We've got explicit statements in Luke already that Jesus is the king that's come through the line of David. He fulfills the promise given to David as the king that will reign forever on David's throne. Jesus has been lifted up as the royal son of Psalm 2 who will rule over all the nations. And so Luke uses this term kingdom over 30 times. And he continues to use it in Acts as the gospel of the kingdom continues to spread. If you think about the way Luke uses kingdom, he uses it a couple different ways. In Jesus' words, when he comes, the kingdom has come. Consider Luke 11.20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But there are also references to the future coming and establishing of the kingdom of Christ. So in the coming of Christ, the kingdom invades earth. It's, it's made visible We get a glimpse here in in the ministry of Jesus into what this kingdom is and what it looks like in Christ's realm, in Christ's authority, in Christ's power. Sin and sickness and evil and wickedness are cast out. They're overruled. 
So Jesus came preaching the kingdom. And His ascension, we say He's reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father. He has accomplished and offers the forgiveness of sin, but we wait the full and final consummation of this visible kingdom here on earth as He rules over the nations. So we want to hold these two in tension that Jesus has come and He has defeated the powers of evil. He has defeated sin and He offers forgiveness to those who are humble enough to receive it, to turn to Him on the basis of faith, but we await a day when Christ returns. We'll have more time throughout Luke to kind of dwell on the kingdom as we walk through it, but for now the emphasis falls on the mission of preaching this good news. Because it's come down from the Father. Jesus has been sent for this. So Jesus refuses to stay. He refuses to stay in Capernaum. He is compelled by his mission to travel and to proclaim the good news to the towns. And he does that in verse 44, preaching in the synagogues. Now if you read the Paul Tamir version, he said of the Jews. There's a reason Paul said that. His eyesight's failing. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Judea Judea is sometimes used really specifically to refer to the southern part of Israel. And the reason I'm saying this is because Jesus is in Galilee, and it seems weird for Luke then to say, and he went to the synagogues in Judea, and then still in Galilee. Judea is sometimes used very specifically for the southern part of Israel. Other times it's used more broadly to refer to the area in which the Jews dwell, the land of the Jews. It's used that way in Acts. And again, Luke wrote Acts. Probably by the time we get to chapter 24, I'll quit saying Luke wrote Acts. We'll just know. In Acts 10.37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee. So there's places in Scripture where Judea simply means all of Israel, and that's what I think um, the point of Luke is here. So Jesus proclaims the good news, he heals, he demonstrates his authority over demons, putting on full display the power and the authority that he possesses and the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus possesses full authority as God incarnate. As you think about Jesus as God, we are reminded that, that the demon was actually saying something true. Jesus is the Holy One of God. The Bible says God dwells in unapproachable light. And what we see in the Gospel is that in Christ, the unapproachable God becomes approachable. He welcomes the weak, the unworthy, the rebel, and the sinner. And in order for the holy and righteous and unapproachable God, whom we would be consumed in a moment if we were to stare upon His face, in order for the unapproachable God to be approached by sinners like us, Jesus had to deal decisively with our biggest problem, which is sin. And He does that on the cross. Yes, He defeated the power of Satan and wicked angels. Yes, He guarantees a time in eternity where there will be no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death. But He's also met 
our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sin and the opportunity for peace with God. And for those of us who have turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be reminded and encouraged that though we imperfectly serve Christ, that we still wrestle with sin, He is gentle with His people. He is compassionate with those whom He has placed His love on. He is patient with us and He stands ready to forgive. In Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory about Christian leaving the city of destruction and he's, he's walking through the Christian life, he's on his way to the city of Zion and on his path he meets Apollyon, a hideous beast, symbolizing, representing Satan and his evil forces. And in their interaction, Apollyon is trying to get Christian to turn around, go back to the city of destruction. Serve me. Don't serve Christ. And in a last-ditch effort, Apollyon taunts Christian, reminding him of, of all his failures in following Christ. So look at, all, look at all these times you've stumbled and you've fallen and you let your prince down. Why don't you come back and serve me? Don't serve the prince of peace. Serve the prince of the power of the air. And Christian says this, all this is true. All my failures that you reminded me are true and much more that you have left out. We don't have time for you to rehearse all of my failings. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and he's ready to forgive. In Jesus, in his compassion, in his glorious gospel, the unapproachable, holy, and righteous God, the Holy One of God is approachable. He stands ready to forgive. Let's pray.